Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Today, I talk with an old friend, New Bedford, Massachusetts Mayor John Mitchell. We talked about how his community has adapted to changes in the environment and the economy, and is doing so again in the face of climate change. We talked about his shift from prosecuting mobsters to being mayor of his hometown. And finally, we talked about why Red Lobster didn't stand a chance in America's largest fishing port. Enjoy. Mayor John Mitchell, welcome to an honorable profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Brian, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about what's going on here in New Bedford. We have so much to cover today, but I want to start. It's Earth Day, and your community has been tied to our natural environment, its economy, its culture, in every way possible for centuries. Can you talk about how you think about the natural environment and climate change and all the challenges as it relates to your community? Oh, absolutely. Well, so I think the starting point is everybody is to understand where New Bedford sits and how that's mattered in its history. So New Bedford is a city of a little over 100,000 and a metro area of about 250,000. And we are about 60 miles south, directly south of Boston on the southern coastline of Massachusetts. And New Bedford's original claim to fame was as the center of the world's whaling industry, where things grew so much prior to the Civil War that by 1857, New Bedford was the wealthiest city per capita in the United States. And since then, since the decline of whaling, which happened as a result of a number of more global forces, we've reinvented ourselves many times over. We became the center of hot textile manufacturing in the U.S. at the turn of the 20th century. For the last 20 years, we've been the largest commercial fishing port in the country. And this is after, obviously, textiles declined. And now we're embarking on sort of the next phase of what we're known for, which is offshore winds. Since the beginning of my time in office, tried to position New Bedford to capitalize on what we believe was the inevitable arrival of offshore winds in the U.S. Uh, you know, offshore wind has been a growing and maturing industry for over 30 years in Northern Europe and has been long seen as a main part, a primary part of Europe's and now really the world's strategy to combat climate change. And so, you know, we recognize that New Bedford's geographic position, close proximation to some of the windiest areas on the planet was something that we could capitalize on both for the good of our regional economy, but also for the good of the planet. And we stand now just several months out from the beginning of the staging of America's first industrial-scale offshore wind project, the Vineyard Wind Project. So, you know, New Bedford, if you sort of look across New Bedford's history, you see 
a series of reinventions and we've, uh, over time, which is something that we are proud to have been able to pull off. In each of those phases, we've been a national leader and we continue to understand our role, not just in the regional economy, but in the national economy as one of leadership. We think it is necessary you know, for us to be out front and to be progressive and to be oriented toward competition as the world changes around us. So on the matter of an answer to you know, your question about like, so how is it that we are working to lower our carbon footprint and to become a leader in climate change, in climate change mitigation adaptation. We've done a number of things over the years. So some of them right here at home include things like becoming the, you know, one of the Northeast leaders in the use of EVs even before they were popular. We were very aggressive in building our, out our solar footprint a few years back, 2014, the Wall Street Journal observed that we more installed solar capacity than any city in the continental U.S. per capita. And the reason they framed it that way is it turned out that Honolulu had more than us, which is not exactly a fair comparison. But uh, <laughs> nevertheless, and we had one of the largest energy-saving contracts, ESCO contracts on the East Coast. We retrofitted all of our streetlights with LED. We retrofitted buildings with energy-saving technology. And we did a whole lot before it really got popular around the U.S. And, you know, we've been reaping the benefits, both direct and indirect, ever since. We've saved taxpayer dollars, of course, and we've created jobs. But we've also, I think, contributed more than our fair share to mitigating the effects of climate change. At the same time, we've, we've worked hard to mitigate the effects of climate change. Here are the risks associated with climate change here. We established the city's Office of Resilience, which is focused on such matters entirely. And we have implemented a climate action plan that is frankly working. We've done things like built bike paths on top of our hurricane barrier, which has our hurricane barriers are the largest levees on the East Coast, and they protect us from storm surge. But by building a bike path on the tops of them, in these 50-year-old levees, we add great public recreation space, but we also strengthen those levees against storm surge. So, you know, sometimes we've been able to have our cake and eat it too when it comes to climate mitigation. But we've done a number of other things to mitigate the threat of flooding all throughout the city. We've, in terms of, you know, hard infrastructure like pumping stations and roadways and widening culverts, a number of things that are fairly ordinary, but also doing things with more sophisticated sensor technology in our wastewater system that allows us to you know, control flooding and to detect flooding risk before it happens, including by using AI to create things like digital twins that allow us to determine when flooding might occur and where discharges might happen so that we can redirect that water as a wastewater as needed. So I use these as a number of examples to illustrate just our orientation. We are a city that is prone to storm surges. We are a seaport city as much as any place in America can claim to be and have been throughout our history and continue to be. And so we are cognizant of the risks that, very cognizant of the risks that climate change pose to us. We take them seriously and been proactive in dealing with them, not just for our own good, but for the broader good globally. Can I ask, I mean, the bike paths and some of these adaptations are, they're a win-win some of these other policy initiatives, offshore wind, have not been without controversy. So change is hard for folks. And obviously, your city has changed a lot over the centuries and adapted. But how do you as the mayor help 
lead that conversation to get people comfortable with the idea that we're heading to a new reality, a new economy, a new approach to these things? Yeah, I think adaptation generally is tough business in politics, right? Meeting adaptation is tough. I think it's tougher these days because of the erosion of trust in public institutions and in public figures. What I've tried, I've strived to do in my time in office is to preserve my own credibility and the city government's credibility by being as transparent as possible, by being as available as possible and being willing to answer questions of any sort all the time and to be able to explain why we make certain decisions. If the mayor of a city can articulate the basis for any particular policy decision and do it as clear terms as possible, but the ways that focus on long-term benefits as opposed to short-term benefits, that's, it can go a long way to commanding the public's trust. Now, that's the coin of the realm. Trust is our currency. And so no matter what the issue is, you know, our approach has always been about advancing the city's interests, period, right? And not be seen as advancing my own political aspirations or those of my supporters, but being putting the city's interest first, exalting the city, and at the same time, doing our homework, doing the hard work of digging into issues that allow us to speak with authority about them and explain to people why we're doing what we're doing. That's been the overall approach. And so in the offshore wind space, there's a good example. Bedford is the biggest commercial fishing port in the United States. And commercial fishing not only represents a major source of jobs and revenue for the city and centers a, a large maritime cluster here and represents a big source of America's food, but it's also deeply ingrained in the city's culture. This is a city that is oriented toward seafaring and the ocean generally as much as any, if not more so than any city in the country. It's been that way really from the beginning when New Bedford started off as a whaling port. And so, you know, change, because what we do here has been so deeply ingrained in our understanding of place and our connection to it, changing that orientation takes some work. The offshore wind industry has been regarded by many in commercial fishing and many who care about commercial fishing as a threat. And so I bring some credibility to the table on that score. I come from the Bedford fishing family. My grandfather is a Bedford fisherman who's lost at sea. And I, I don't think that I could be fairly accused of shortchanging the commercial fishing industry. But at the same time, I know that New Bedford has to diversify its economy, that we have to ensure that we continue to grow and that we can't grow as well and as much as we'd like if we rely on one industry. And so... You know, I've taken pains to explain how it is that I believe that both offshore wind and commercial fishing can successfully coexist. And so we've attempted in that vein to be a trustworthy arbiter between the two industries. We try to be a referee. And yeah, I think most people would agree that in doing so, I would position myself in one of the loneliest places in American politics, if not the loneliest, which is right in the middle. But that's what's necessary. I see that as being necessary for my city's success, which will depend on the continued growth of fishing, but also the introduction and success of offshore wind here. And so that's how we've tried to facilitate things. And, you know, being up to speed on the needs of both industry, being able to explain it clearly to the public and why we're doing it, why it's not a threat is something where we spend, we take great pains in doing and 
so far, I think it's gone pretty well. But there's still, you know, many moons to go before we can say that the two industries are integrated. But I think we're on the right track. You're in your fourth term as mayor, and you know, mayors are on the front lines of leadership in very challenging times. Even when you don't have pandemics and economic crises and all kinds of other things that we've experienced the last couple of years. What's your advice for people who are either heading towards being a mayor or just in the front lines of their organizations who are trying to be where you're at, which is the loneliest place, which would be a fair arbiter to be in the middle, to try to do what's right in a world that rewards conflict and controversy? A couple of things. So first off, I mean, as you know, people look to their mayors for all sorts of assistance and guidance and leadership, right? It's just sort of automatic if you live in the city. And, you know, call it a patriarchal or matriarchal relationship, but there it is. And so ultimately what people are looking for are just a few basic things, right? They want you to know the city's interests, the general interests and not the special interests, and to advance them, to be always honest about it, and to give it your all. And it's just might all that might sound trite, but you know, at the end of the day, being a mayor is something I would commend to anybody who has not just the executive skills, but the inclination. And the inclination is one if you can say to yourself that you are passionate about your city, that your city's welfare and long-term well-being is what you really care about. And if you get into public life, you have to ask yourself right from the start and continuing onward, what do I really care about? Then I think being mayor is, it may well be for you. But I would just say for anybody who wants to venture down that line and say, you know, in some respects, it's sort of an exercise in riding the tiger, right? Cities are unpredictable and there are different needs and times change and all sorts of unexpected events come up that you're never fully prepared for. Every mayor in America in the last couple of years had to deal with a pandemic, right? The likes of which we hadn't experienced in the United States in a century. And so, you know, having an orientation toward learning, toward understanding what's missing in your city, understanding what needs to be doubled down on, what needs to be compensated for. These are all things that you constantly have to be looking for and about and rethinking and building your team around learning and adapting. Then you can respond well to the exigencies of the day, whether it's you know a pandemic or something you know, far less dramatic than that. So that, I, mean, I guess that's what I would say on that score. And let's talk about your journey. You were a prosecutor working on some nationally known cases, Whitey Bulger and others. How did you find yourself heading towards mayor? Yeah. I mean, I think I've always had a bent toward public service. And I tell people the story of how when I was a senior in college, I did some interviews at investment banks and had friends who were going into investment banking. And I actually interviewed, this was a time when, you know, back in the 90s when there were investment banks everywhere. And in fact, there were just private equity wasn't what it is today. And there were more established investment banks. And I went to did some interviews in New York and some in Los Angeles. I went into one in Los Angeles. I can't remember the name of the bank, but <laughs> I remember being asked by you know, a fairly senior partner there, so why do you want to do this job? And I was stumped. I was I could not pull together an answer as to why I wanted to go into that line of work, which is one, frankly, that attracts people who want to make a lot of money. That, <laughs> saying that that's a bad thing, but that is the primary motivator. And, you know, it caused me to reflect about what I wanted to do long term. And so I do feel 
you know, I'm passionate about certain things and I'm passionate about getting up in the morning and doing things that help out other people. And that's not to say I'm, you know, more virtuous than anybody else. But if you are somebody whose boat is floated by your ability to advance your values and to help folks, then you know, public service is probably going to make to be gratifying for you. And so I ended up after college moving to Washington, D.C., decided to stay there to go to law school. After law school, I got into what's called the Attorney General's Honor Program at the Department of Justice, where I was a federal prosecutor and worked on a number of types of cases, mostly white collar, but also some street crime cases in Washington, D.C. And then I moved back to Massachusetts after I met my wife. We got a job at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, where she still works. And there, after spending some time in private law practice, I went back to being a federal prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston. And there, I worked on a number of different types of cases. Again, some white collar, but some other stuff. And it's a couple of major art theft cases. And I was the guy in the office who did the environmental cases. So I worked on a number of you know, big oil spill cases. I prosecuted Exxon and some major shipping companies. And I was also the prosecutor assigned to work for Whitey Bulger, who is, you know, the America's most famous fugitive, not named Osama bin Laden. So that was an interesting undertaking in its own right, made for all sorts of interesting stories. And that's probably one of the reasons why the movie's still being made about Whitey Bulger, because it was, you know, just lent itself to great storytelling. But I found that job to be very gratifying because you got to get up every morning and work hard to do justice in the name of the United States. And it wasn't, you know, I think there's a culture in the Department of Justice that is entirely about service, about doing the right thing. I think some of that's been eroded, that institutional culture has been eroded in the last few years. It feels like uh, it's starting to come back now. And I think that's uh, the Department of Justice plays such a crucial role in America's own credibility with itself. And so I was proud to be part of that tradition. But I felt I'd gotten enough out of that work that, you know, like you reach a point in certain jobs where you're you know, you've learned about as much as you can and that there were maybe other ways to serve. I'm from here in New Bedford originally. And, you know, I thought that being the mayor would be a really interesting job and a very gratifying job because, you know, I would be able to go to bat for my, you know, from my hometown. They were, you know, so deeply rooted. But secondly, what attracted me to this position also was sort of the degree of difficulty. New Bedford is an older industrial city in the United States that is not part of a major metro. And as such, it hasn't, like so many others, especially in the Northeast and the Midwest, it's lost much of its manufacturing base and has really struggled to carry on. And we've seen all the deals associated with economic decline, right? It's, it runs the, the full gamut from declining tax base to you know declines in schools, declining middle class, you know, higher crime rates financial strain, all those things, right? But I felt very strongly that if we worked really hard, if we brought together a strong team who were willing to take on political risk, that we could achieve some big things. And so, you know, I'm 10 years into it now, and I feel like we've been able to accomplish a lot of what we set out to do. The crime rate here is down by more than 40%. Since I started, the high school graduation rate has gone from 58% to 88%. We have the highest bond rating in the city's history now. We have a growing, modernizing port. We have major investments going into there. We're about to open up intercity rail service between here and Boston. Our airport is growing. And we've got this burgeoning restaurant scene, right, in a city that you would not 
associate with fine dining. So we've been able through setting a clear vision for the city as the center of activity in this region of Massachusetts and one that had certain cards to play despite you know all the headwinds that we face as a city that's not part of a major metro these days when those major metro cities are you know living in golden ages we've sort of succeeded against the odds and it's going to take you know still many years more of determination and focus to continue to succeed but i think we have the place in a good spot now you know to build for future success i'm curious because you have the most sympathetic audience in the world uh, as a former mayor of a city of 60,000, 65,000. But, you know, a plurality of Americans live in cities our size, yet the national dialogue seems to be just completely focused on the big cities and the rural areas. What do you think America's, you know, federal and state policymakers need to know about small cities and what they can do to improve the lives of the residents there? Well, I'd say so for starters, you need to know that much of America lives in and around places like New Bedford and Santa Cruz, right? There's a whole lot of America out there. And that lives in places that have to confront the question, you know, how do you succeed in a world in which capital and talent are inexorably flowing to the superstar cities, right? I think that, you know, this is a trend that's been going on for many decades, but one that has accelerated in the last 20 years due to changes in technology, changes in the composition of the American economy, changes to the global supply chains. I mean, there are lots and lots of reasons for it. But, you know, if you're from a place like New Bedford or a Youngstown or a Flint or Santa Cruz, you watch certain things happen. You see the climb of not just your economy, but your civic life. You watch institutions struggle, whether they are schools or civic organizations or newspapers, which is a, remains a really big struggle across much of America now. But you also see things like your most talented children leave, right? Most of we watch it all the time. It's the high schools in our region. I, I couldn't name a single valedictorian that's actually come back, right, in the last 25 years. So, you know, that in itself is, you know, it creates this presumption that in order to succeed, you've got to leave the place, which is established a real fundamental challenge. That is, like, how do you establish a place that people want to come to, right? That's how cities succeed, right? And ultimately, they're places where people aggregate, right? And if you are seen as a place where that's not the thing to do, if you are to succeed in life, then you, you as a city have a big problem. And so I think people, policymakers at the national level have to understand that. I happen to think that the accelerating trends benefit, have benefited the major metros. It explained a great deal of the divide in the United States right now. We often talk about inequality in the United States in racial terms. And we talk about it in terms of you know industrial sectors. But there are real big geographic fault lines in America that delineate winners and losers. And so, again, you know, I go to you know, we're 60 miles from Boston, but what can be said about Boston can be said about you know, 25 other cities around the country, which is they may not realize it, but they're living through a golden age. And what they're experiencing is prosperity. This is what prosperity looks like, but the rest of America may not quite see their lots the same way. And so folks, so much of, as we've seen in elections and American politics generally at the national level these days, are a lot of folks 
who feel like they don't have a voice anymore. The country's going in a certain direction and government's not responding to them. It's responding to others. And so, you know, we look around and it's often, I live in a city where, you know, that's generally considered to be a traditional democratic bastion, right? A largely Catholic union stronghold that voted, you know, almost uniformly for, you know, Franklin Roosevelt and JFK and other Democrats and presidential elections. And now, you know, in the 2020 race, Donald Trump got almost 40% of the vote. And that's in Massachusetts, right? So a number of our suburbs were, were won by Trump. And so it really speaks to, you know, how I think division in America, uh, how people understand the direction of their lives and their relationship with government has gone a little haywire because of changes in the American economy. I do sort of tend to look at those changes as being the source of a great deal of the consternation that we're grappling with as a country now. Yeah, that's a sobering insight. <laughs> I want to wrap this up, though, with for that valedictorian who may come back or somebody just coming to visit New Bedford. Give me 24 hours in your community. What should I do to understand, to enjoy, to experience your community if I had 24 hours there? Well, so if you're visiting or you're for investing, right, this pitch is somewhat similar, right? But I would say, I'd say, look, you know, in an America that is attracted to living in big cities, right? And living in urban areas, right? New Bedford is a place where you can have your cake and eat it too. And by that, I mean this. We offer all the urbanity that people have been looking for in the last 20 years in the United States, notwithstanding the sort of recent, you know, decentralization trends during the pandemic. People still want to live in urban areas. And here in New Bedford, you can do that. We have a built environment that is well-designed, well-laid out, architecturally appealing, with many of the urban amenities that people like, like a performing arts center, museums and art and the connection to water. But at the same time, it's a place where people don't have to suffer the externalities that they can't avoid in big cities. We don't have high levels of gun violence, right? We actually have a very low, much lower crime rate than we used to. It's a safe place. We really don't have much in the way of traffic. And we are a place that has a reasonable cost of living, especially compared to the rest of the Northeast. And it's a place where you can get to know other people, have a sense of belonging, but still have an interesting life, right? It's not in the boonies. You're in a city that you can get your arms around. It's manageable. And that makes for a place where you can know your neighbor, feel comfortable and safe, and know that your children can advance into fully formed people where they know everybody, but they can also get a good education in a place where you feel like you matter. And that is, you know, a set of attributes that together would offer a pretty good antidote for what ails America right now. That sounds pretty good. I also imagine you can get some great seafood. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, people are pretty discriminating about seafood. People of every walk of life a few years ago. It was about 10 years ago, the Red Lobster tried to set up shop here and, and people could tell that what had been frozen and what and for how long. And so Red Lobster didn't last. <laughs> it just can't compete with like the little diners that serve, you know, fresh scallops and other fish that, you know, for like half the price. So if people know the difference between a good piece of fish and a lousy piece of fish here, and probably unlike most of the rest of the country. <laughs> I love that. Well, I, for one, can't wait to come check out New Bedford and eat that fresh seafood and check out how you're adapting and finding 
opportunity in the challenges that confront us around climate change and everything else that's going on in the world. I think you've been a model for so many of us about how to adapt your city and find the opportunities and be entrepreneurial as a small city in a global environment. And so we appreciate your leadership so much. Well, thanks for having me, Ryan. It's been, it's been a great opportunity to talk to me about these things, especially with a former mayor as, as well-respected as you. And as you know, you know, when mayors get together, it's sort of a uh, mutual self-help exercise. <laughs> Yeah, and theft, theft of every idea that everyone else right. has. Plagiarism uh, <laughs> is encouraged among Paris, yes. Well, thank you. Have a great day, and I can't wait to see you soon at the next New Deal event. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. Thank you.